away and just thought I just have to clear this all out. When you're vertically challenged, you have to make other arrangements. Praise the Lord. Well, we're going to get into Ephesians chapter 4. Looking forward to the rest of the book. The Word of God is kind of like sandpaper. It uh, can irritate you if you're not in the right frame of mind. But if you yield to it, it does its work, making a beautiful finish. And, yeah, some of these things, uh, especially as I was studying for this, I found... uh, such a lack in my own life, and but found sweet uh, comfort in the Word of God. The Word of God never wounds without um, providing the healing that's needed and grace to um, to be all that it promises we can be. Well, let's read Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 16, although we definitely will not get that far. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come into the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, 
which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for all of your mercies. Thank you for your word. We pray it would work in us. Bring us to that end, Lord, the, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that Christ could be manifest in each one and every part. A healthy body, Lord, able to war and able to love in all of its parts. We look to you, Lord. We thank you for all your goodness and your grace in Jesus. Amen. Of course, when the Christian talks about war, he's not talking about bombs and clubs and knives and spears. If someone was listening to this message, they might be aghast. But uh, that didn't know the Christian context for war is not physical, but it's spiritual, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. And the major offensive is the Word of God, and the ground of it is the love of Christ. Well, we've. Uh, Come as far as uh, the end of chapter 3. Paul has prayed that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. And that you would know and comprehend the love of Christ. The the breadth of it and the length of it. Really, it's um, boundless. It is boundless when you think of that the love of Christ is beyond no sinner and there have been and will be and are ghastly sinners in the world uh, the worst of being the self-righteous religious people who think they know, don't need any salvation and everything in between and Christ's love can touch uh, any heart Um, the, the book is divided into three or two parts. The first three uh, chapters being largely um, theological in nature. And the next three are largely practical in nature. Although when you read through, there is theological um, explanations or underpinnings. And uh, we need both. But once you get into 417, it's mostly um, practical in nature. Do this, don't do that. And that's the basic um, division of the book. So we're getting into the practical. And Paul starts again with, I therefore, the prisoner... Of the Lord, beseech you. 
And it's amazing that he was, who was he a prisoner of, when you think about it? Physically speaking. Yeah, Nero. Rome was, he was a prisoner of Rome, but he doesn't say that. He, uh, He doesn't say, now I'm writing from my prison house, which was a, a, a rather good accommodation as prisons would go. He wasn't in the stocks, but he was in a rented house and he was perhaps chained to a Roman soldier. Certainly he was not allowed to freely roam around, but he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. <clears throat> and he uh, says in chapter 3, verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. He recognized that his circumstances were um, because of the Lord, not because um, he was happened to fall into prison. It was because uh, it was God's plan that he would go there, not something we would strategize. We wouldn't put our best we wouldn't think the best thing to happen is that our best man gets thrown in jail. That wouldn't be in our plan uh, to further the gospel. But in God's plan, it, it, it was. And he speaks from that um, position when he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, if he was uh, like many leaders now, they speak from their ivory towers, their uh, million dollars, or I have to say more than a million because a million means nothing now, uh, multi-million dollar ivory towers, and they tell people you should do this and you should do that and you should behave in a certain way. But when it is someone that is in prison uh, for Jesus Christ, then... He is speaking from, if I could say, a position of experience. If I'm in a difficult place and I'm going to be teaching things that uh, would be difficult for you to hear and to do, then he's speaking from uh, a place where he's not looking down on others. He is... uh, at their level, so to speak, or in a worse position than they are. And really the whole tenor of this uh, chapter down to verse uh, 16 is basically one uh, metaphor, and that is the building up of the body of Christ. That's how it ends, the edifying of itself in love. And with so many people in the the body of Christ, and we are all Gentiles, we're not coming from two drastically different uh, upbringings, one being very lax, you might say, other being, um, you know, certain food laws and how to dress and all of these things, very disciplined life, and many Gentiles would not be so, and those two people were to come together, those two groups. And when you bring two people together that are drastically different, you have what? Friction, and friction causes 
difficulties. And that's uh, the basic. Uh, in order to build up the church, you need to eliminate friction and you need to eliminate disruption of unity so he's going to tell them uh, how to avoid that <clears throat> and it's it's one thing to uh, say that when things are going well but it's completely a different thing when you start to walk around and guess what when you're walking around in a big crowd and you're never more aware when you're wearing sandals and you have open toes there that people can be stepping on your toes. And when they, they do, then friction begins, uh, disruption begins, and unity can be fractured. And that is uh, Paul's concern. <clears throat> He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. <clears throat> the theme uh, or the word walk is mentioned seven times in uh, the book of Ephesians, and it's basically the living. That's how you live is basically the theme or what is behind the word walk. And we'll just quickly run through there in 2.2. When in time past ye walked, in time past, that's how you walked according to the course of this world. <clears throat> and then in 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath ordained before that you should walk in them. You should live in them these uh, good works. And then in our passage before us, that you walk worthy. We're, if you're going to bear the name Christian, then you want to be living a life that would be worthy of that name. You see people with those fish on the back of their car. They, some of them say Jesus. and you know, you, you know the ones I'm talking about. And you hope you drive like you're a professing Christian, not be cutting people off and sticking your hand out the window and any kind of uh, carnal behavior that would, uh, yeah, just take the sign off your car if you're going to be doing that. Um, so if you are going to profess a certain name, you want to walk uh, worthy. <clears throat> Down in four. 17, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye should henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. So it's a continuing theme in 5.2. It says walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. In 5.8, walk as children of light. And in 5.15, walk circumspectly, not as fools. So again, the, the bulk of the exhortations of how to live come in the latter half of the book. And it's very important 
that we live a certain way. And it's a vocation. <clears throat> you ask people, um, what do you do for work? How many of that? I mean, that's a very common one-liner. Um, in our frame of mind, our vocation is uh, a Christian. You're a Christian first, and then you're something else later. You're a Christian carpenter, uh, bricklayer, whatever you want, um, engineer. You can fill in the blank. But first of all, your vocation, what you're called to do is to be a Christian. And everything is filtered through that um, that vocation. How you analyze what, uh, how a, your whole life is basically funneled down through that. Um, your call to that. <clears throat> a vocation is the action of God calling a person to exercise some special spiritual function. And then most people would think of um, it's the ministers that are in a vocation, but the lay people, those people that are in the pews, are absolved from that when the actual fact is no, we are all called to live uh, a certain way. And he starts with basically four attitudes. <clears throat> Your frame of mind as you are going to live in this vocation and you're going to live in unity in the church needs uh, four basic um, attitudes in order to make that successful. <clears throat> in verse 3, it's called an endeavor. An endeavor takes time, it takes energy, and living the Christian life and having a church that's unified is an endeavor. Um, we have all experienced uh, failures in unity. Um, I think we've all, if I look around, we've all lived long enough, uh, and I think I've seen... I've been in three Christian churches since I was saved, and in each one there's been a failure of unity and uh, a lack of love. And it's because people are not exercising these attitudes and actions. So that's basically, uh, I don't know how far we'll get, but... Hoping to get to verse 6. <clears throat> Four attitudes to walk worthy. The first one being with all lowliness. <clears throat> the world is not big on lowliness. Everybody <clears throat> wants to walk uh, in pride, really. And lowliness is not high on people's um, list of things to be. <clears throat> But it is a humble uh, demeanor and inward man. And let's uh, look at a few scriptures. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34. 
Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace to the lowly. It's clear from the scripture that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the, in this case, the lowly, the humble. The Lord Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. The next verse we have to turn to is Zechariah 9.9. As I read it again, I was staggered, staggered at uh, what's before us, Zechariah. The Jews had expectations of Messiah, that he would be uh, a conquering leader like David who led the nation into battle and subdued the enemies on every side, militarily, uh, riding and coming in with Saul and the women chanting, David has slain his, or Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. That's really the kind of Messiah that they were expecting and wanted. And what did they get? Uh, Martin showed me a picture. Uh, They were recently in England. He showed me the picture of this carriage that the queen would be riding in, correct? Is that... The queen or the king, for that matter, which is now. And it was this big, ugly, ornate gold carriage. And it weighed, uh, I don't know, they didn't say four tons. It weighed four tons, or it weighs four tons. It's sitting up on blocks in some building in England somewhere. But it's for the king or the queen to come in um, and... For special occasions, inaugurations and things like that. I forget the last time it was used, but it was a a while ago. 20 years, perhaps. But the whole point being, the queen would never be... um, Yeah, coming up and showing up in a car like Jesse's, some beat-up old... um, What is it again? That... uh, the blue thing you ride around in. You wouldn't see the queen driving up in this little pup-pup and getting out with perhaps a chauffeur there. My lady. It's just not happening. Showing up in a rust bucket um, or a jalopy. So picture... Uh, yeah, a modern-day diplomat. They're coming in a fancy car. They're pulling up in a limo and getting out. They wouldn't be caught. Uh, I know it's a cliche. They wouldn't be caught dead in, in that. But here, the Lord Jesus, <clears throat> the king of the universe, and it says, Rejoice greatly. This is Zechariah 9 9. O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. This is fantastic. 
lowly and riding upon an ass, upon the colt, the foal of an ass. Uh, The colt of a donkey. (laughs) What? I thought he'd just come in on this white horse and horse like Anna's just rearing up power, swords and no, a donkey? <laughs> what a disappointment. But that's how the king of the universe rode into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, and they were shouting. But I'm sure some people were thinking, what is this guy? And on many occasions they did. They thought, who is, is this? This is the son of Joseph. We know this guy. He's not that spectacular. We've seen him. Of course, they're looking for the wrong things. But this is how Christ came in. Lowly. He walked that way his whole life. He was born in a stable. It wasn't polished floors in some sterile hospital or in the king's palaces. Um, Even John the Baptist, the forerunner, was a very simple man. He says, kings are in palaces with soft clothing. John the Baptist, you could say a rugged man. Um, And emblematic of the coming king a prophet who um, he wasn't yeah, some great uh, man riding in on some white horse. That would come later. <clears throat> and it's not a literal horse, you understand that. It's in the book of Revelations, emblematic of a conquering king. And he is uh, a conquering king. There's a time, and he was displaying uh, lowliness. And he exhorts us to take my yoke upon you and learn of me. We have to learn to be meek. The prophet says, seek meekness. means putting down pride. When it arises in your heart, you need to put it down. Say no to pride, to self in all of its forms. And uh, the second attitude is is meekness. And I have uh, struggled to really understand uh, this word. It's kind of like something that's always out. You go to grab it and I know it might be easy to you, but it's not to me. And I've, uh, I've heard of power under control. Mm, yeah, there's a part of that, but... Um, looked up, of course, the dictionary definition. Gentle, courteous, kind, patient, free. Um, free from self-will. Um, but the best definition I have... I have heard, I've read in a commentary, forgive me, uh, I do have my wife's cell phone, don't recommend you bring it into church, but the 
the section I was to read was too big to copy out. And uh, I, I thought it was so uh, fitting of description that it was worthy uh, of reading. Meekness relates to the manner in which you receive injuries. We bear them patiently uh, and not to retaliate or seek revenge. The meaning here is that we adorn the gospel when we show its power in enabling us to bear injuries without anger or desire for revenge, but with a mild and forgiving spirit. In Numbers 12:3, it says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all men that were upon the face of the earth. And prior to that, it says that his brother and sister, Miriam and um, Aaron, spoke against Moses because he had married an Ethiopian woman and said, Has not the Lord spoken by us? And uh, a proud man might say, what? And get all up in arms and get all tied up in a knot. And, but he didn't. <clears throat> the Lord actually intervened and spoke for him and reproved them sternly. And we know he smote Miriam with leprosy for their uh, foolishness. And of course, Aaron cried out for her healing, which she was. Moses immediately um, came to her aid and prayed for her. Moses was meek. That was an injury, but he wasn't vengeful. I'll wait to read the portion about long-suffering. Long-suffering, definition, the the patient endurance of provocation or trials. Um, When we are provoked, we need to be long-suffering. And it's easy to be long-suffering when we're with people that love us and then aren't stepping on our toes, but... Um, when that happens, then there is uh, the need to exercise long-suffering. Let's turn to uh, Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. Now Moses was... Uh, long-suffering. Moses. Chapter 14 and verse 13. We'll start reading in verse um, verse 11. Now just think of when we get to this point in the history of the people of God, they have seen God act on Egypt, in destroying Egypt, ten plagues, all the way up to the death of the firstborn. They have gone out, and they have gone through the Red Sea. They've seen 
the waters of the Red Sea parted. They've come through that. They have um, seen God deliver them miraculously on several occasions. God says ten times. He has uh, shown them his power. And then this is, uh, again, uh, the last straw. God brings them right up to the door of the land and they, they send the spies in and they come back and they raise up an evil report about the land. And this is the Lord's reaction in verse 11. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it ere be they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them. I will smite them with a pestilence and disinherit them and make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. A proud man might say, You're right. (laughs) These people are the biggest pain in the neck that I have ever experienced in my life. And perhaps he would be justified in doing so, but he doesn't. And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for thou broughtest up this people in thy might among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land, for they will have heard that thou art, thou, Lord, art among this people, and, thou, and that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them. And that thou goest up before them by day, daytime in a pillar of cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou wilt kill all this people as one man, then all the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. Now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according to that thou hast spoken. The Lord is long-suffering and of a great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of thy mercy, as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt until now. In verse 22, it says, Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened unto my voice. Moses intercedes for the people. He was uh, a meek man. He was a lowly man. He was a humble man. He was long-suffering. And God hearkened unto his voice and did not destroy the people. <clears throat> Turn to First uh, Timothy one sixteen. Timothy. <clears throat> Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them 
which should hereafter believe on him unto everlasting life or life everlasting. Just think that Paul was uh, mad against Jesus Christ. And the Lord was so merciful to him, so long-suffering. On the road to Damascus, he didn't appear unto him to destroy him. But he appeared unto him to turn him from his way. That's being long-suffering. As a pattern, he says, that Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering. If Jesus can save Paul, anybody else is easy, is uh, nothing uh, to him. Long-suffering. Just read another section from Albert Barnes. With long-suffering is to bear patiently with the foibles and faults and infirmities of others. The virtue here required of us is that which is manifested in our manner in receiving the provocations which we meet from our brethren. No virtue, perhaps, is more frequently demanded of our contact with others, that of long-suffering. We go not far with any fellow traveler on the journey of life before we find there is a great occasion for its exercise, that of long-suffering. He has a temperament different from our own. I'll spare you those uh, psychological words. And while we may be just the reverse, so you get people with different temperaments, people that are... um, I, I don't even know how to describe those sanguine and melancholy. I'd be more a melancholy person, kind of somber. Not, I'm not Pete Barch. I'm not, Yahoo! You know, all that. I'm just not that as, uh, and you might not be either. Um, so you get these two different kinds of people, very uh, different. He has peculiarities of taste and habits and disposition which differ from ours. He has his own plans and purposes of life, his own way and time of doing things. He may be naturally irritable, or he may be so trained that his modes of speech and conduct differ from ours. Neighbors have occasion to remark this to their neighbors, friends to their friends, kindred to their kindred, or one church member to another. You know, brother so-and-so is X and Y and this and that. And you're pointing it out lovingly, but if it's true, it's an irritant to you. And we can remember sandpaper is, uh, yeah, can be an irritant or it can smooth you. In regard to the husband and wife, such are the imperfections of human nature. We can find enough in each other to embitter life if we choose to magnify imperfections and to become irritated at trifles. And there is no friendship that may not be marred in this way, if we allow it. We can magnify the faults of others, or we can choose to cover them in love. And when you start to magnify those faults, then they become big and large, and larger in others. And it can be so with those that we're close to. 
in the church. And when you start to do that, yeah, you're going to fracture uh, the unity that's there. <clears throat> Hence, if we would have life move on smoothly, we must learn to bear and forbear. We must indulge the friend that we love in the little peculiarities of sayings and doings which may be important to him, but, but may be not important to us. Like children, we must suffer each other to build his own playhouse in his own way and not to quarrel with him about what he does not think uh, that our way is best. All usefulness and all comfort may be prevented by an unkind, a sour and crabby temper of mind, a mind that can bear with no difference of opinion or temperament, a spirit of fault-finding, an unsatisfied temper, a constant irritability. <clears throat> Just skipping down. It is such a gentle and quiet virtues as meekness and forbearance that the happiness and usefulness of life consist. Far more than brilliant eloquence and splendid talent or illustrious deeds that shall, that shall send thy name into future times. It is the bubbling spring that flows gently, the little river which glides through the meadow and which runs along day and night by the farmhouse that is useful, rather than the swollen flood or the roaring river. Niagara excites wonder, and we stand amazed at the power and greatness of God there as it pours from the hollow of his hand. But one Niagara is enough for a continent or a world while the same world needs thousands and ten thousands of silver fountains and gently flowing rivers that shall water every farm and every meadow and every garden and shall flow on every day and every night with the gentle and quiet beauty. So with the acts of our lives, it is not by great deeds only, like the martyrs, that good is to be done. It is the day it is the daily quiet virtues of life, the Christian temper, the meekness and forbearance, the spirit of forgiveness in the husband, in the wife, in the father, in the mother, the brother or the sister, that all good is done. His point is that uh, the great deeds of life are not often where the work of God is done, but it is with that gently flowing meekness that comes from our lives. <clears throat> we shouldn't be satisfied with anything less. And we keep, um, we look into our own hearts, not thinking, hmm, that brother could be more meek, or that sister could be more long-suffering. Long-suffering is to bear with the injuries that come from others. And... We can, those that are closest together can injure themselves the most. It, it was David who said, if it was an enemy, I could have bared it. But it was my own familiar friend. That uh, It was Ahithophel who stayed behind and counseled with Absalom against David. That was a pain to him. It was Judas who ate at his table that ultimately bore Christ those deep wounds. 
long-suffering, forbearance. Turn back to Ephesians. With all lowliness and meekness, humility and forbearing the injuries of others. Long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. To forbear is to tolerate or endure or abstain from enforcing a debt. Somebody owes you. Somebody uh, hurt me. Turn to Colossians 3.13. Just over a couple books there. This is so necessary in the unity of the church. Reading in verse 12 for context. Again, the same theme of unity. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, bearing or forbearing one another and forgiving one another. And this is how it would look. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. When someone doesn't ask forgiveness, you forgive them anyway. (laughs) When someone steps on your toes, you just, um, as it were, overlook it. Overlook uh, that fault. Now, there are some things that need to be dealt with, and we, um, we, yeah, don't want to minimize those things. But, um, Many things can be overlooked, can be covered in love. The foibles and the um, deeds of others against us, comments or attitudes that might not be um, as they ought. Verse 3. So with those attitudes and... Long-suffering is an attitude and it's an action. So is forbearing. It's an attitude. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And it's an endeavor that we can never afford to give up on. It's things that are long uh, require a a lot of effort, a lot of um, concentrated effort. I've uh, had the privilege of working with Matthew and some other brethren on a job, and it's this big greenhouse. And Matthew started planning on that, I don't know, three, four months ago. Yeah, back in April. Uh, And it's just come to fruition, and then we got there, and then all the supports, or half of them, were on the ground. 
and then they slowly went up and this is a long endeavor and they're going to be there when it's cold really cold outside I'm glad I won't be there but <laughs> until the heat's on then you can call me back but it's a long endeavor and so is the unity of the church it will never there'll never be a time when you say well yeah I guess we don't need unity now it's always uh, an endeavor and it requires effort and we can never um, as it were stand down our guard endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace the dictionary definition it's a strenuous attempt it's not like Oh well, you know, uh, it's a strenuous attempt, and it requires uh, all of our energy. You're never going to get there if you don't uh, strain yourself and exert yourself. Turn to Psalm 133. There isn't much. I was surprised. There isn't much mention of unity. Uh, the word, anyway, in the Old Testament. But it certainly was a thing. Psalm 133. Familiar psalm. <clears throat> One of the psalms of degrees. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And then it illustrates, it is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and that went down to the skirts of his garments. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descendeth upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commandeth the blessing, even life evermore. There it is, the unity, uh, God's blessing is commanded, even life forevermore. And where there is discord and division and strife, then the blessing of God is not uh, there. So there is that uh, illustration for us, the anointing oil and God commanding his blessing there. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes on to... um, to demonstrate why we... uh, We are to have that unity. There is one body, one spirit, even as you're called unto one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Because the Christian faith is a unified faith, then we are to be unified. If one worshipped 
Baal and the other worshipped Ashtoreth, I wouldn't expect there would be much unity. And so, but since we all worship uh, one God, then um, we are to demonstrate uh, that unity. <clears throat> and now we don't have Jews and Gentiles in this church, but if there was, and this is the context which Paul writes, there would be much need for or much cause for division turn to 1st Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and verse 10 1st Corinthians 1 This was in every church. It wasn't unities for the Ephesians and not for anybody else. It says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, he's beseeching them because there is divisions among them. And he does say that some divisions are necessary for a time. Because if there's false doctrine, there needs to be division. But most of the time, divisions do not come for that reason. In this case, it was because there was a division over personalities I say this, every one of you say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? The answer is no. But in the Corinthian church, there was much division. Division over personalities, there was division over the head covering, there was division over the gifts, there was division uh, over... Many different things. There was division over, is Paul really an apostle? And uh, why isn't he receiving support from this church? And all kinds of negative things started to appear, which the, um, is addressed throughout the epistles of First and Second Corinthians. But there is always cause for um, disagreement and for division. Turn over to Colossians uh, Much of the material in, I hate to use that word, much of the word in Colossians is um, repeated in Ephesians. Similar themes. Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which ye also are called in one body, and be thankful. When there isn't peace in the individuals, 
then when we get together, there won't be peace amongst us. That is for sure. Uh, Let the peace of Christ, our peace of God, rule in your hearts. And be thankful. Unthankful people getting together usually uh, results in strife. And when we see unthankfulness creeping into our lives, uh, then we can be sure it's going to disrupt uh, our peace. And then finally, 2 Thessalonians 3.16 2 Thessalonians 3.16 Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. That should be the norm. Peace in the church. Uh, That's what we're um, aiming at. then things can get done. If there is strife and uh, friction and difficulties in relationships, then we're not going to be demonstrating the unity that God would desire or that is worthy of our profession. Turn back to Ephesians There is one body. Again, the theme of the body of Christ uh, extends down into the rest of the chapter. That is really the metaphor that uh, he is going to use. So there is just one body. That's the church uh, universal. Ephesians um, 5.30, it says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And verse 32, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. We're members of his body. That's the, um, the main metaphor there. Romans 12.5. Romans 12.5 So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. We are all connected, just like a body is. A body is all connected. And if you don't think a certain part of your body is is uh, unimportant, then I don't know if any, any of you have ever had a uh, toothache, a really bad one. I know that uh, I didn't experience one until I was in my 40s, and you cannot ignore it. And you think, no, it's no big deal. Or an ingrown toenail. I don't know if you've ever had that. Whew, it, you're... You're out. You can't be doing much. And you, you watch your toe so that nobody steps on it. It is very painful. Um, and otherwise, you think, eh, big toe. Could do without it. But 
No, you realize that you can't. And, and how disruptive it is if just one small member is out of joint. And it can be like that uh, for his church. <clears throat> so there's one body, and we can't um, entertain the fact of that being in uh, disarray. There is one spirit, <clears throat> one Holy Spirit. Turn to uh, Ephesians, no, no, not Ephesians. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. In verse 4. <clears throat> now are, there are diversities of gift, but the same spirit. Verse 11, but all these worketh that one and the self same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he wills. And then verse 13, for by one spirit you're all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made, all made to drink into one spirit. The Christian church is to be unified. Now, people have gone crazy with that idea and have invited all kinds of um, false teaching into the church with the fervor for unity and um, all kinds of Christian cults and everything and isms and schisms come in. And that's not what Paul had in mind. There is unity in the true church of God. And we ought to be such and not be. Uh, I appreciate uh, Martin leading out in thinking about other brethren that may not be uh, under our roof, so to speak, and in our comfort zone of uh, outward things, that there are other brethren that are doing the work of God as well, and we ought to be uh, supporting them. Uh, I was just with a couple the other night, and they are actively preaching the gospel and counseling people, and they wouldn't share all of our doctrinal I's dotted and T's crossed. It isn't to mean that we're uh, in important things, uh, as the scripture would define them, we are to be unified, but in other less important things. We are to be uh, gracious toward others. I think of my, the beginnings I had in Christianity as a... Oh yeah, I was... Didn't have all my I's dotted and T's crossed, but I love the Lord. And uh, that's really what God is after. Notwithstanding, we um, want to walk in the truth in all things. Turn back to Ephesians. We have, um, so it isn't just the, it isn't just big sweeping unity with everybody that would name the name of Christ, because many people would name the name of Christ, but would also, uh, in the same breath, say that the Bible is not the word of God. That's not the kind of unity that we're Many churches would profess Christ, but would deny him in the basic uh, 
things. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people that love the Lord and that love his word and that uh, love the gospel. And with those people, uh, we are to be unified. I think we understand that, but it does bear uh, repeating. There's one body and one spirit, even as you're called, in one hope of your calling. When you look at someone else that perhaps is not, uh, maybe have disagreements with, um, but they have one hope as you do. And I had to think, what is the great hope of every Christian? And I came up with, with this one. You might come up with something else, but turn to 1 John chapter 3 and, and verse 2. This is the great hope of every Christian that will solve all of our problems. It's our pursuit in this life. First uh, John three two. Behold, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope. In himself purifies himself, even as he is pure. That's the great hope of every Christian, is that we'll be like Jesus. One Lord, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole Trinity is mentioned here. You have the Spirit in verse uh, verse 3, the Lord Jesus in uh, verse 5, and the Father in verse 6. A unified Godhead, uh, one God, is to be displayed in a church, one church with a unified heart and mind and pursuit. So we have one Savior, one Lord, it says, one faith, that is the, uh, the Christian faith. Peter, I believe, in First, Second Peter, one one says that. Uh, let's turn to it, or else I'll misquote it. Second Peter one one. Imagine if you are in a a non-Christian country, and it was be a, a place where Christ was hated, and you meet another believer. Uh, that would be precious. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So really, there's just one faith, one faith in our our Lord Jesus, one Christian faith. And in our context, we can... We can become lax, not appreciate uh, these things as much. <clears throat> One baptism. Now, I, I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure that this would be referring to water baptism because there is uh, the baptism of the Spirit. If we turn to. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 
But if you say, oh, it refers to water baptism, yeah. I don't think it's referring to the mode of baptism, but just that all, are, all believers are baptized. And I thought, well, some are not. Uh, some have even refused baptism. And you might question why. It says for in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit we're all baptized into one body. And we have been made to drink into one Spirit. So there's that um, baptism of the Spirit. But in the Lord said in Mark's Gospel 6, 6, 16, 16, Again, if I quote it, I'll probably butcher it. Mark 16, 16. He who believe and is baptized shall be saved. He who believes not shall be condemned. Again, I just quoted it without looking at it. <clears throat> Whether it be water baptism or the baptism of the Spirit, there is only, there's only one. <clears throat> he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. <clears throat> and there is one God, finally. Woven into the verses of 4 through 6 is the truth concerning the Godhead, the essential Christian profession. <clears throat> and... Uh, John seventeen twenty one. John seventeen twenty one. <clears throat> we'll start in verse three. I'm not going to read. I just this is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is, this is what eternal life is. A great definition of it if you ever want. Somebody wants to know what is eternal life. This is eternal life. It's to know God. <clears throat> and then down in verse 21. That they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. That they may also be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. A fractured, fighting, disagreeable church is going to be a terrible testimony uh, to the world and will convince no one of the oneness of God and the oneness of the Christian faith. And amazingly, God still works through churches that are imperfect and that uh, experience disunity, but we should never be content with that, always uh, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in uh, the bond of peace. And we all have a part in that, <clears throat> what we think about others, what we say about others, uh, can either stir up strife or it can uh, bring peace. And that's our, that's our pursuit, is to pursue the unity of the fellowship.
by meekness, by lowliness, by long-suffering, by forbearing one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Lord, we look to you. Uh, We know these are continual things that will uh, confront us, and might we have the grace of God, Lord, to, uh, to walk in the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace, Lord. We know it's destroyed so many uh, a church, so many uh, testimony of you, Lord, has been destroyed through disunity, strife, and often over trivial things. Grant us grace, Lord, each to walk in our homes with each other, Lord, that we would demonstrate the unity that is already there. We thank you, Lord, for your grace that is abundant for each one of us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.